guys. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Yesterday, I wrote a daily encouragement that I sent out to on Instagram and on to close friends as a text. And that encouragement went along the lines of that wearing a mask is sometimes not sometimes, all the times, as far as I'm concerned, just so fatiguing. It is, you're trying to pretend that you're something that you're not, and especially nowadays in, in, in the age of social media, it is so bloody normal. And people even now start believing the masks that they put in front of their face and think that's the real them. So we've lost to the ability to look truly into ourselves with that preamble i'm extremely humbled to get elena Furstum here to me onto the show because elena like me is changing the way that people think about themselves and she does so by living her true identity, living out her true identity. She lives the life that she meant to live and has stopped trying to please others. So it's a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful journey that I take you on today with Elena. So thank you so much, Elena. Thank you for coming on to my show. Thank you so much for having me, but also for all the time and energy you've put into building this platform so that it can be a place where you get to pass the mic and, and serve your people. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Elena, we met on this uh, podcast forum and when I read your journey, I knew I had to have you as a guest on my show. Because uh, I drive a Toyota Estima. Uh, it's a people mover, uh, can fit sort of six, seven people in there. And that was exactly who you were, how you, how you described yourself. So let's go back in time and try to figure out who you thought you were originally. Mm -hmm. What did the mask look like? Who were you uh, in the past? Wow, this is an incredible analogy that you've brought up, especially at this time, because where we, where I live in the United States, we are required to wear a mask anytime we are out in public, even if we're walking outdoors down the street. And we are all realizing we just cannot connect the same way by wearing a mask, right? Like even when I'm with my kids at the library, my kids who obviously know me very well, they lose all these context clues of what I'm saying. Like I can't be sarcastic and I can't tease them. You know what I mean? Because all of that context is gone. And so we have this huge disconnect just because of a stupid mask on our face. And so I think it's fascinating to think about, yeah, I was wearing a mask for a really long time. And the one of the biggest hurtful things that came from that was the lack of connection with other people, people that I loved, people that I wanted to be really close to. I couldn't be because of this mask. So I think that that's, uh, it's just really tweaking my brain how you brought that up. So who was I? 
I was born in kind of a crazy family, like a lot of us are. You know, when you're growing up in that environment, you really think I'm the only one that has parents like this. <laughs> and one of the blessings of adulthood is to realize, oh no, pretty much everyone has a family like this. <laughs> We're all screwed. <laughs> well, there's crazy and there's crazy, okay? Yes. Uh, it's, uh, how, what particular kind of crazy did you grow up in? Yeah, so it's really actually fascinating because religion plays a lot into my mask story, my personal mask story. Um, but my parents, my mom was raised a very conservative Catholic, and my dad was raised very conservative Episcopalian. And so their parents were enraged that they would fall in love and get married. And there were grandparents that were refusing to go to the wedding, like the whole nine yards. And it was a huge part of the reason why they moved before I was born, but when my two older siblings were already here. My parents moved from the East Coast, Connecticut of the United States, all the way to Arizona. So they literally moved across the entire country to get away from religious drama. <laughs> And then when I was 16, I chose to join a fundamentalist church. <laughs> oh, God. And so I shouldn't even be like, why? Was Was that, was that rebellious? Was that automatically what a 16-year-old does? Uh, you look uh, at your parents. That's yeah. yeah. When I've gone back recently and asked my dad and stepmom, like, what did you think when I got baptized? Like, do you regret not stopping me? And they both said, you were a 16-year-old teenage girl. Like, we thought, okay, she'll be Mormon this week, and she'll be Buddhist next week, and she'll be vegetarian the week after that. They were like, we weren't going to fight you on that. We didn't realize it was going to be a 20-year issue in your life, <laughs> but we didn't fight you. So, yeah, it was a lot of, um, I didn't really feel like I belonged in my family. They had all just come from the East Coast, right? And so I was the first child of the family born on the West Coast without my grandparents nearby. Like, I didn't connect with all those distant relatives that my family were always very connected to. I had never met them. So it was really hard to feel like I belonged. And, and then you throw in like a mom who has some mental health issues and a dad who's a recovering alcoholic. And then they were divorced. And, you know, you just throw in typical stuff. Like none of it was atypical. It was just the, the right perfect storm for me to be a teenager and to feel like I don't really belong. I don't really know what the rules are. I don't know how I'm going to be a good mom and a good wife when I'm older. Like, I really wanted a plan. I want to check off this list, and that way I'll know I'm a good person, and I know I'm a good mom. And so this church kind of offered that. They were like, yeah, you get baptized, and that's step one, and then you go through all these other steps, and then you know you're a good person, and you're going to return to God. Like, you know the outcome if you check all these boxes. And boy, that sounded great to me. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. You know, especially when you're a teenager, you're so often like black and white, good, bad, right? They have very little concept of the gray shades in between. And so I was just really excited to not only have the plan, but also I had this community that were like, yes, you're now one of us. You know, your your first name now is sister because we're all brothers and sisters. And so your sister at the time I was Normington, right? That was my name. And your history is now our history. Or I guess I should say it, 
the Mormon history became my history. I became adopted into the fold. And when you feel like you don't connect with your family, that's a really great feeling to feel like you really belong to a whole community and a whole global family. And it was great. I don't, I'm not bitter about that at all. Like that community really filled a hole that I had at the time. Um, And then I went off to school. I went off to college, put myself through college and had a Mormon roommate. And I hadn't grown up in the church, right? So there was a lot of little things that I didn't know about. A lot of culture, a lot of language, a lot of how you dress, how you don't dress, a lot of how you date. Like everything was dictated. And I kind of needed to learn that quickly because everyone else had learned it growing up and I hadn't, right? And so she introduced me to a friend of hers from high school. He'd just gotten back from his mission and he was nicer to me than any other man I had ever met. Hmm. He was so kind and so respectful and funny and smart. And he had just served a mission in Japan. So it felt like he was very experienced and worldly and, and very much the concept of being in your twenties in that church is your next step. Okay. You've been baptized and now your next step is to get married. So every Sunday when you go to church, all the talks are about, don't wait on this. Don't be too picky. Like your salvation is dependent on you getting married and having babies. So get it done. (laughs) So I was 20, I was 19 when I met him and I was in my senior year of college and he proposed and I said, yes. And we got married when I was 20. He was 22, I think. And he had a full ride scholarship at another school, actually the church school that's in Utah and um, Brigham Young University. And so we went there and he did his bachelor's and his master's. So we were there for quite a while and I had luckily graduated. And that was the only way I was able to support our family because I had this college degree and it turned out I was one of very few Mormon women in that time that had her college degree. So that was kind of interesting. Mm. Um, and I learned about a lot about Utah culture during that time. And I learned a lot about the organization of the church. And, I, and it was during that time when it became very clear, this is not a Sunday-only religion. This is a lifestyle. And you're going to live it every day day in, day out, for eternity. This is not just till you die. Like, this is for eternity, which is also the marriage, right? It's not just till death do we part. It's we are sealed for eternity. And that's the only way to get to heaven, by the way, is if you're sealed in a temple to an eternal companion. Okay, so we've kind of set up what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm now in my 20s. And I have gone through the temple. I have gotten sealed so that I can be with God for eternity. And by the time I'm 30, we have four kids. And by the time I'm 35, we live in the neighborhood of our area. I'm driving the minivan of our area, right? I've got my four beautiful, wonderful kids. And... Like our neighborhood literally had a white picket fence going around it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) For real. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) Uh Yeah. 
Okay, keep coming, keep coming. It is, it is, this picture is so building up in front of me. Yes. And, and, and I'm so conflicted because the rebel in me automatically wants to just scoff at it. Oh, come on. And, and then the other guy in me who actually likes, likes security and mm -hmm. likes, like certainty, et cetera, says, well, that's not so bad. What's wrong yeah. with that? And then it's so, uh, it's interesting, the, the conflict that's building up in me, mm -hmm. uh, just listening to you whilst you actually had to live it. Right? Yes. And I think that that's a fast, that conflict is a fascinating um, symptom of whenever I describe that life is very much, many people feel the same way. Like you were living a dream life at the very same time you have the thought of, that sounds like prison. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But then again, some prisons, they have got golden bars and mm -hmm. some people like the security and the, the resoluteness that it offers. You know exactly what you're up against, I guess, mm -hmm. or what, what the rules are. And if you're a person... What the rules are. Yeah. Yes, if you, if I knew is, exactly who I was and what the rules of my life were. Yes, I was a mom of four kids. I was the wife of a CPA, a tax partner in his firm. He had gotten partnership before he was 40. So I was the wife. I was the mom. I was, I made bread every week. I was in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts. I was one of their leaders and made sure they got all their little merit badges and got to Eagle Scout, like the whole thing, right? Like, and I knew I could have those labels and that meant I knew who I was right? Those roles, those labels that I had put on myself were Elena. That was me. And so when I would have little thoughts pop up in my head, like, I am so trapped. I would push them away so fast before I could even finish the sentence because look at my life. It is amazing. I mean, I'm doing better than 98% of the world. And I am not ignorant of that. Like, I have nothing to complain about. So when that thought pops up in my head, I will absolutely not entertain it. That is a worldly thought and it's selfish and it's everything I'm trying not to be. And so I'm not even going to acknowledge that I had that thought at all. And then my youngest went off to school and I all of a sudden I had six hours a day to think for myself about myself. <laughs> and that was really hard because those thoughts started coming in a lot. I feel trapped. I don't like my life. I'm so discontent. I'm so unsatisfied. And so I just did what, I mean, it's, it's very prescribed. My youngest goes off to school. What am I supposed to do next? Join a gym, join a gym and get my body back. That's what I'm supposed to do. So I did. <laughs> I followed the rules and I joined an awesome gym and it turned out I really loved it because the weightlifting was yet another way to get this external feedback that I was a good person. I could track my physical weight going down every week. I could track my strength increasing every week. And what that told me was I'm a good person. I'm in control of my body. Oh, you're not. You're overweight. That's too bad for you. You must not be in control. I am in control. Uh -huh. Right? <laughs> oh, excellent. excellent. Yes. Yes. But then again, so, let's 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 whilst you're making a little bit fun of it, let's 
just talk about that freedom that you gave yourself there because running a household that is strictly prescribed, uh, having four children for crying out loud. I mean, we were not struggling with two, but two is already a handful. Um, and now to, to, to herd cats and mm -hmm. to try to, to get that life sorted for the last, what was it? You would have been, when was your first one born? I was the, 22. 22. And we are now talking... I'm 35 at this point. So, so that was, that's 13 years, 13 yeah. years of working day in, day out, bloody hard, because mm -hmm. baking bread is, is beautiful, but that takes half an hour out of your life. Okay. Yeah. So then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, by the time you are hitting 10 o'clock at night, you are a dead woman walking. Come on, you're crashing yeah. into bed. There is not even time for you to contemplate who am I? You were, you had your own life on hold for the better part of, you know, 13 years. So, right. But I was completely convinced that I was living my life because. Mm -hmm. I was doing all the right things. We were studying our scriptures every morning together at 6 a.m. as a family. We were saying our prayers together every night before bed. I was going to the temple every week. I was going to church the four days a week that I was supposed to be there. Like To me, I was like, this is my life, and this is what I'm living, right. and I am checking off all these lists. And, and that's why I couldn't stop and be like, oh, is this my life? Or is this the life that's been prescribed for me? I could not take the time to ask that question because there was so much to do. Exactly. Exactly yeah. my point. So yeah. therefore, I guess we need to give yourself a little bit of, of, of uh, lots of, well, actually lots of creed, lots of, wow, you did that and you kept it together. Wow. Mm -hmm. That is a huge achievement in its own right. But tell me, are there Mormon gyms? Uh, so is that, is that, or no, was that just a normal gym and suddenly you got involved with actually a very different crowd in there? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people that were there because our area is actually 75% Mormon. Oh, wow. So to like statistically 75% of the people that were at that gym were probably Mormon. Um, but it wasn't like a very Mormon atmosphere. Um, and then I couldn't stop the thoughts and so I started running. I started doing long distance running because when you're struggling to breathe, you can't think. <laughs> so <laughs> it helped a lot. Okay. Um, looking, yeah. Looking back, I realized I was literally running away from my life. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I'm not a natural runner by any means. And so I had a good friend who was a an incredible long distance runner and so we traded. He gave me a training program and he, one of his hobbies was fly fishing and fly fishers um, practice catch and release. And so he'd spend thousands of dollars to go on a trip to Canada or Argentina or New Zealand. And then the only thing he had after the trip were the photos. And I was a professional photographer. And so I gave him photo tips and he helped me train for marathons. And then he had friends that wanted me to help and it kind of started to blow up. And I was like, oh, if I'm going to charge people money, I need to learn more about the sport. So I started taking lessons and I fell in love for a few reasons. One is it's so technical. It takes so much skill and presence of mind that it pushed out all those thoughts. 
right? I couldn't be distracted by all those thoughts when I was so focused on landing a fish. But the other part of it that was so good for me, well, first of all, you're standing in a river, which is that in and of itself is like really good for your physical and mental health. But I, you also have to really be in flow. You have to close down all those 437 tabs that are in your brain, right? And you have to be so present and so embodied and so grounded. And I had never experienced anything like that. I had never meditated a day in my life. Like (laughs) I had never welcomed that experience into my life. And all of a sudden I was on a pretty regular basis. And I started to connect with my body again. I hadn't realized I had been so disconnected from it for so long. And I started to be okay being in my body. And I started to trust that I could listen to my thoughts and it would be okay. The world won't come crashing down. And the thoughts that came out at that point were, yet the reason you don't like your life is because you love your best friend. You're completely in love with a woman. And that was a tough realization to make on a few levels. Obviously, I'm married to a man and had been for 17 years. I have four children. I belong and am very active in a faith framework that says homosexuality is a sin, and I will not get to heaven if I am a practicing homosexual. And I didn't know if she liked me too, and she was my best friend. And so I couldn't say anything. If I said anything, I could screw it up, right? And she was the only source of happiness in my life at that point. And so the stakes were very, very, very high. Um, She was a fly fisher as well. She was one of the people that had taught me in the beginning. And eventually the two of us couldn't fight it anymore. And I had to tell my husband and I had to tell my bishop And it wasn't, looking back, it's astounding to me. There was never a question of, all right, well, maybe you're gay. Like, how do we want to work with that? It was never that. It was, Elena, you screwed up. You let things go too far and you need to fix it. You're broken now and you need to fix it. So in my effort to fix it, And to keep my life and to keep my afterlife, I enrolled myself in a conversion therapy program. Um, It's also called reparative therapy. It's any therapy whose goal is to suppress the same-sex attraction and result in heteronormative attraction. Um, My husband knew I was doing it. I'm sorry? I didn't even know that something like that still exists. Um, Is that, that's like exorcism. In, in for the lack of a better word. Right, for the lack of a better word. So it, it exists on a spectrum, like everything in life. And so there is conversion therapy that's just talk therapy. Mm. And there is conversion therapy that's very physically invasive. And it used to be like electroshock therapy, right? And that was very prevalent in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and now what's very prevalent is... Um, Forcing someone, especially teenagers, that's who get sent to the conversion therapy camps most often. Um, Forcing people to watch homoerotic images and then forcing them to drink like a charcoal drink that will make them vomit. And so they create that mind-body connection. Yeah. That blows my mind. 
I didn't know about that. Um, I, you, wow, far <laughs> out. We are, we are talking, what is that? That is 2000 and when are we talking? Which year are we talking? Well, about? It was three years ago. So 2007. Fuck me. Fuck me. What is that Mormon specific? No. Is- oh, no. No, it's everywhere. Um, it's all over the world. It is banned in the United States in about 20 states. Um, but it takes every state to enact their own band because the federal government in the United States will not. Um, New Zealand is actually fighting a big fight right now, trying mm. to get it banned because um, there's quite a few camps in New Zealand. Um, in Europe, the EU has asked all of their members to create a ban, but only three countries have Germany, which was in the last year, Albania, and huh. Malta. Um, but there's a lot of conversion therapy camps in Italy, a lot in Ireland. Oh yeah, well yeah, that's Catholic everywhere. Church. That's Catholic yeah. Church to the extreme. Yeah, bloody and hell. And of course, a lot in Russia because they don't even like to acknowledge the existence. So, bloody hell. I, okay, I'm blown away here. I and not in a good way. That is scary. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Sorry, I'm 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 interfering with the interview here, but it's just because I'm so dumbstruck that this has been such a prevalent, or still is, such yeah. a prevalent kind of thing in a in a time when we should be enlightened. I mean, we should be right. Yeah, you know. I mean, we, we fuck's sake. Okay, no, right. Okay, back yeah. to you. Back to you. I keep my mouth shut now because well, otherwise. Well, no. So, and that is the danger of conversion therapy: is that your typical man on the street doesn't know it even exists, right? And so, and of course, a conversion therapist is not going to label themselves as a conversion therapist because one Google search will show you how dangerous it is, and so they they give themselves all kinds of different names. They cannot be licensed by the APA, the American Psychological Association, or the WPA, the World Psychological Association. Both of those organizations have debunked it. And if you're a member of them and you're found practicing it, they will kick you out. So what you have are these former licensed people who are now acting as quote-unquote coaches. And when they throw pseudoscience at you, it sounds logical. But more than that, you're freaking desperate. And so I went into it with like tunnel vision. I didn't Google my therapist's name. I didn't Google the concept. Can you be cured from homosexuality? Because you can, there's no success rate at it. You can't find like, what university did he go to? Did it, was it a really good training university for conversion therapy? Well, no, that doesn't exist. <laughs> So, so if you had, if I had looked or if my husband had looked or if my bishop had looked at all, we would have known not only all of those things, but also that there is a 42% suicide rate for people who go through it. And if you add in religious influence, like if it's a priest or something actually doing the therapy, the suicide rate goes up to 57%. And you can get those statistics from a group called the Trevor Project. They did a huge, massive survey. Um, so that's the problem, is that most people don't know it exists. And then of the ones that do, they're so desperate for a solution 
that we weren't willing to look into it and make sure that it wouldn't cost my life. Because I truly don't believe that these parents and these spouses that send people to conversion therapy, I truly don't believe that they're aware of the risk that they're taking. No one who loves their kid or loves their spouse would send them where they have a 42% chance of dying. Yeah, but somehow our government still think it's okay. So that's a little bit of a struggle for me. <laughs> so, sorry, I no, got off track. No shit, Sherlock, honestly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. No, it is. I think it is important because if I'm blown away, that means that probably most of the listeners out there and viewers out there will equally uh, think, what? Yeah, uh, because it is, as you say, it's not out there. It's not not being being highlighted, probably outside of uh, LGBT uh, groups and, and and people who focus on that on on a more yeah. common level. So therefore, let's 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 break that taboo yeah. and actually talk about it. Let's 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 use that interview and highlight the one in two chance that you get that you take your life. Yeah. And that is a brutal, brutal figure. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And when I got to that point and I was so privileged and I know that it's privileged that I was able to get help that day. I, you know, I woke up with a plan to take my life and I was in a psychiatrist's office by 2 p.m. that afternoon getting emergency help. And for to hear that psychiatrist say to me, you have been in conversion therapy. You had a 42% chance of this being the result. That was like, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I've been hearing voices telling me to run my minivan off the freeway, screaming at me. And I was so tired of fighting the voices. And I was going four days a week, two hours a day for six months to this conversion therapy and being told, yeah, it's not working. You must not be trying hard enough. Of course. Uh, how much did it cost you? I $40 mean, $40 a day. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Is yes. The, the guy belongs behind bars. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Okay. But he's a uh, millionaire instead. Far out. Because, well, if you look at statistics, if you look at statistics, and these are, these are very conservative statistics, one in 20 people would identify themselves as homosexual or gay, yeah. etc. I recently had guests on the show where I, where I asked that question or discussed that incidents. And quite rightly, those guests pointed out that when you're taking a survey, most people will hide that they're homosexual. Yeah. They will not, not, not admit to that. So the, yeah. the official 5% are probably well and truly a low figure and it's yeah. much higher also don't forget that the world is not black and white yeah. whilst you might actually uh quite be attracted to to the opposite sex mm -hmm. it does not mean to say that you're 100 percent happy with that all the time so yeah. it is that the gray zone uh that that is probably quite significant out there 
but then to 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 mislabel it as a uh, not but I guess to label it as a sin or to label it as a crime, mm-hmm. that sounds like something from the Victorian age, mm-hmm. and yet we are living it here with our blinkers well and truly established. Yeah. Oh dear! So, yeah. uh, what what happened then? I mean, when was that? Three years ago? We're talking. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So three years ago. So. I was able to get the emergency help and I was able to understand why I was feeling the way I was. And I was very lucky in that they prescribed me for the first time in my life. I was taking anti-anxiety and anti-depression and I was sleeping for the first time in years. How beautiful is that? So beautiful. Yeah. And with every night of sleep, I could wake up and life was just a little clearer and my connection with myself was a little clearer And I started connecting dots. And one of the dots I connected was, it was during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and the Me Too movement was happening, you know, and Gwyneth Paltrow was out there and it was starting to become very apparent how many women have been assaulted. And we started to see these statistics of 75% of American women are assaulted. Well, the reason I bring that up is because my therapist, the science he was applying, and I say science in air quotes, is that he was sure that something had happened to me as a kid that made me think that I was attracted to women. And so if we could go back in my memories and heal that trauma, then I wouldn't be attracted to women anymore. And yes, like a lot of women, I had suffered an assault. I was 15 years old, hadn't told anyone about it in my entire life, not my parents, not my husband, no one. And I told him, I told him and the thought was, okay, we're going to go back and and heal that experience. And then you won't be attracted to this woman anymore. You won't be in love with her. And so he had like a breathing technique that I would do every time I came in where it's not like a hypnotic trance, but kind of in that when you think back to a memory, all the details come in a lot stronger. You remember things you had forgotten. Right. And so every day, Every day, we would go back to this memory of when I was 15 and hash it out and experience it. And sometimes I'd change the ending. Sometimes a hero would come in and save me, like all these different scenarios in an effort to heal this trauma. And so here I was on the meds finally and starting to make connections and realizing 75% of American women have been assaulted. 75% of American women are not gay. That Uh, doesn't uh, correlate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, touche, touche. I love it. (laughs) Okay. And then I started to think about good friends of mine who had gone through their own like horrible assaults. And thinking, man, if anyone should hate men, it are, it's these women, like of what they've gone through at the hands of men. Like if anyone should be a lesbian, it's these women over here. And they're not, they're not even a little bit attracted to women. They have husbands and very healthy sex lives. And I'm over here without that, <laughs> trying to figure out like, so am I broken? Because six months of conversion therapy has told me I'm very broken. But the science says I'm not. 
And then when it came down to a question of, I had had a therapist tell me early on, don't you ever come out to your kids. If you come out to your kids, it will destroy them. You'll ruin their lives. So of course, as a loving mom, I'm, I, I lock that down. I'm never going to come out to my kids. I'm never going to hurt my kids deliberately. And so then to almost lose my life, then it became, do I want my kids to have a dead mom or a gay mom? Those are my options. I, have, I want to stay alive. I have to stay alive. I want that more than anything to wake up tomorrow on this earth. Okay, what do I have to do to make that happen? Well, it sounds like I have to start living a life without the mask. And as scary as that is, it is worth it to watch my kids grow up and have their own babies. That is worth it. I will take off that damn mask. So, yeah. So that's when Life 2.0 began. Wow. Yeah. That was three years ago. How did you break it to your kids? How, how did you go about that? That was still to date the scariest experience of my life because I had raised them Mormon. I was the one that had taught them that homosexuality is a sin. I was the one that had taught my teenage sons, don't you ever masturbate, you will go to hell. Yeah, I was that person. <laughs> And now I had to go to them and be like, hey, so. <laughs> I think I was a bit wrong. Oh, it might how? have been a little wrong. That's right. You mean 100% wrong. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. Yeah. So were they, may, may I ask, were they also in a Mormon school at that time? Well, it's a public school, but like I said, 75% yeah. of our area is Mormon. Yeah. So Good. 75% of their classmates are Mormon. The classmates, yes, but the the teaching is yeah. hopefully more inclusive and and is talking about homosexuality in a more balanced way, in a more biological way. No, no, our area oh. is way too conservative for that. That is Ooh. not allowed to be talked about at school ever. Oh, oh, okay. So there yeah. are the influences there that are well beyond the curriculum. I yeah. see. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. Far out. So my oldest two are boys. They were 15 and 13 when I came out to them. And my youngest two are girls. And they were like seven and nine, I think, when I came out to them. Um, the girls were easy, right? Like, okay, guys, like, you know how daddy has a girlfriend and we're so happy for him? Mommy has a girlfriend too. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, we know. She's a girl and she's your friend. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Yeah. Okay. The innocence, <laughs> the innocence, yeah. Yeah, so they were definitely not that hard. Like once they got it, they got it. And it's not that big a deal to them. Um, they do get teased at school about it, which is kind of a bummer. But But when we're here in our home, it's not a big deal to them. My boys... I was so scared. Not only were they older, but my ex and I had made the decision to move into the same neighborhood so that our kids could walk to school, walk to each other's houses, like we could all be right here. And so I just had this thought that the minute I told them, 
they were going to leave to their dad's house. They could walk there in five minutes and they would never want to come back because their mom was a lesbian. Like I was convinced of that Um, to the point that I avoided telling them for a really long time. I really, I kept it hidden, which looking back is funny. Like I was willing to file for divorce, but I wasn't willing to tell my kids, but I was just so scared. And um, I heard through the grapevine that my husband, my ex-husband was going to tell them if I didn't. And that was a good kick in the pants. Like, oh, hell no. This is my story. You're not telling my story to my kids. Why? Why did he want to tell them? He was fighting for full custody. That's, and, I, I expected that answer. Yeah. yeah. The boys are of the age that they can choose. And so he was hoping that they would just choose to be with him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's that explains it. It's logical, yeah. Um and so I came downstairs, I'd put the girls to bed, I came downstairs, they were playing video games, of course, and uh I asked them to turn it off and I'm already crying, you know. But I just got a divorce. I was I'm in the middle of a divorce actually. I just left my home and so they were used to me crying. <laughs> That was happening a lot. And um, I finally said the words, you guys, I'm I'm gay. And my younger one kind of nodded and the older one nodded and said, yeah, we kind of figured. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? You knew? And they were like, yeah. And I said, why didn't you say anything? I've been stressing for months. And they said, well, what if we weren't right? Like, that would be really awkward, mom. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, that would be awkward. <laughs> May I just say, obviously, you have you've taught them, yes, you've taught them the values of your religion and your belief system, but you also taught them to be quite resilient uh, mm-hmm. because uh, whatever you did, you did it right. Uh, so you, that is another thing in your favor, as in my books at least. Mm-hmm. You, uh, wow, what a relief that must have been yeah. for you. Wow. It really was. I mean, the battle's still definitely not over. Um, they still struggle. You know, the fact is, is they go to church every Sunday and are told that I'm going to hell. Um, and it's so, I have found, you know, when you're, when you're going through a divorce or some other like intense family thing, you think that what your kids need to hear is, I love you. I love you. And dad loves you. Everyone loves you. You're going to be fine. You are loved, loved, loved. And so that kind of became my mantra until it finally hit me that what they really needed to hear was that I know God loves me. I know that I'm good with God. I know I'm not going to hell. I know every day that God loves me. And when they hear me say that, you can see like the weight lift off of them. Wow. I think that's what weighs heaviest on them is that they're being told consistently that my eternal salvation is gone and that we won't be sealed together for eternity because I am not worthy of it anymore. And so to tell them, dude, God talks to me every day and we're like, good. (laughs) Like that really helps them a lot. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. (laughs) It's kind of an intense story. 
Well, I knew the, the nuts and bolts of the story, but I didn't know the the implications and to hear you laughing about it now i can i can see how many tears there have been in order to get you to that point now and then to automatically think how many people like you mm -hmm. are going through that dark period of uncertainty of self-doubt mm -hmm. of all these negative voices that are just talking in, about you and telling you what a bad person you are and it's just oh my god brutal 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 you are you living together with your with your girlfriend so to speak yeah we just moved in together about a year ago Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. How did that go? It went really well. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, between the two of you, no doubt. But what about the kids? Um, the girls love her. She's uh, so good with them. Um, and she's actually really great with the boys, too, because she's a gamer and they're gamers. And I have nothing to do with video games. And so I can't communicate with them uh, on that yeah. level. And yeah. she can't. Oh, excellent. So, yeah. And she knows all the memes and memes are very big with teenagers. You have to be able to speak in meme these days. And oh. I can't. <laughs> I can't either. So that makes two of us here. Um, and it is, okay, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. So, okay, you've gone through so much shit. And mm -hmm. now finally, uh, the, the universe aligns and... And God is smiling, says, okay, enough tribulation now, enough enough challenges. Let's give her a bit of a break. Okay, <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. I mean, there's only so much shit a, a person can face on a daily True. basis. There must True. be some little sparks of light there. Oh, mm. no, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. What would, if one of your sons now would say, now that's not that's wrong because your son's already seeing the happiness that mummy is now radiating. So that's not a point. I guess the question is, what would you tell your former self? What messages would you send back through a time machine mm. if you could? Huh. So many. Huh. Um one thing I learned really early on, so I moved out of our family home and got into a rental and it was the first time living on my own ever. I was 38 years old at that point and my own master bedroom, my own master bathroom. It was just amazing. But the biggest part of it was how safe it felt. I think anyone who has been in a marriage where there's a disconnect on the sexuality level, that master bedroom has some intense energy in it and intense memories and it's really hard to feel safe and by moving out that was I don't think I could have even anticipated what a difference that was going to make for me in in my state of mind to feel that safe because then I could ask myself the hard questions right are you going to stay a member of this church do you want to date this person do you want to date multiple people um do you, right, like all those crazy questions that I didn't feel safe enough to ask myself before, I was able to. And I'll never forget the night that I was 
scrolling on Instagram, you know, especially in our social media, it can become such an echo chamber because we only follow people that are like us, that think like us and look like us, right? And so my world was very small. Even though I had the internet in my hand, my world was very small. And all of a sudden I was starting to like search for hashtags like lesbian moms. <laughs> Excellent. Ooh, that would have landed me in a lot of trouble if I was still Mormon, but I wasn't anymore. And so I hashtag searched lesbian moms. I was such a rebel. And I'll never forget, I saw my first picture of two women getting married. And it was like a punch to the gut. I had never seen that. I had always thought there's nothing to celebrate there. Um, they're not healthy people. They're not going to be happy people, right? It's a mental illness, right? There's something wrong with it. And so there's nothing to celebrate there. And then to remove that shame and that judgment and to look at it and go, oh my gosh, I want that. I want that kind of love. Like that sparks a light in me that I've never had before. That was incredible. You have to remember, I literally did not even know any LGBT people. And here I was trying to self-identify as a lesbian. Like I had no idea. (laughs) And so that was my very first lesson that I've brought into this new life is that visibility is life. As hard as it is to be vulnerable, every single time I come on a podcast and tell my story or I go on a new show and tell my story, I get messages from people who are feeling so trapped, who thought that they were the only one, who thought that there's no one who could relate to them. I know I thought I thought I was the only one in the whole world who was an ex-Mormon, mom of four, and now a lesbian. I was convinced I was the only one. And then on Instagram, I found another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and another one. And another exactly. one. And another yeah. one. That's right. Turns out there's a lot of us. <laughs> Exactly. Do you all drive to say minivan? Just out of interest. Yeah, yeah. Honda or Toyota. You got to be part of the club. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. No, it is, it is. And that's, that's, see, I thought that is typical for us alcoholics when we sort of think, oh, we are the only ones and, 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 and or oh, I am the only one who goes through that. And it's also full of shame, full of guilt, etc. And, and no, 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 it's completely impossible that there could be another doctor out there who possibly has got depression and PTSD and uh, is hitting the bottle hard. No way in hell. And yeah. then you actually start, you know, opening up and other people open up and suddenly you realize bloody hell and there's so many i need to start a podcast (laughs) yeah something like that something like that and then it's and but it's beautiful it's that that freedom of expressing yourself and actually admitting to something that you convinced yourself for such a long time is the biggest sin is the biggest oh what a shame what a what a what a Oh, awful person you are for being X. And now to actually say, yes, I am X, but let's actually make something out of that. I can't do something about my past. I can't do something about the feelings I have, but I can now repackage that and actually try to get rid of the the evil twins of guilt and shame Mm -hmm. and actually say, okay, let's, let's draw a baseline here. Who am I? 
Mm-hmm. And that is the biggest question. But then the, a far bigger question thereafter is, well, who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. What, what is my future? Where can I find the joy that I think I deserve? Mm-hmm. And that is a question that you guys need to figure out, everyone out there, for yourself. And it is, your joy might be the minivan, and mm-hmm. your joy might be the, the minivan with your lesbian girlfriend mm-hmm. in it and your kids in the back driving yeah. to the to the to a nice holiday somewhere mm-hmm. i'll see the uh, minivan fits everywhere guys it really does. A mini- that's right that's right the same here <laughs> honestly i would i will not change my minivan okay my friends uh this friend of mine just bought himself a sports car and i thought what the hell i i need a shoehorn to get in there so why the hell would i want to do that minivan is cool so that's this don't just throw all your all your things out. Uh, you, you need to redefine yourself. I agree. And that was one of my big struggles living in that rental was mm-hmm. I had lost 95% of my friends. Uh-huh. I mean, my entire community. So Mormon wards are organized geographically. And so basically your 300 Mormon families that are closest to each other, that becomes a congregation. And so in some cities... An entire city is one congregation. But when you have a lot of Mormons together, our ward, our congregation was five streets. I could walk from one end to the other in 15 minutes. Wow. Okay. Okay. So they weren't just like my Sunday people that I saw on Sunday. Like they were 75% of the people that I saw in the neighborhood, that I saw in the grocery store. They were my book club friends. They were my working out friends. They were everyone. And I lost almost all of them. And so then to be sitting in that rental, safe but alone, and having Instagram and social media and everything, and I start to realize, oh, okay, if I'm a lesbian now, does that mean I need to get a nose ring and wear Birkenstocks and wear a flannel? (laughs) And and I started to go down that road, right? How am I going to fit in with my new group? How am I going to belong to my new group? And luckily, I was really practicing self-awareness and, and was able to hear myself think that and to say, really, are you just going to get sucked in and play by the rules of another group? Or how about you belong to yourself for a while? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's how beautiful is that? <laughs> mm-hmm. But that again, you it's all we want to conform. And let's let's not forget yeah. that we come from from a very distant past, fifty thousand years ago, when you were living in tribes and you had to conform to the rules of that tribe. Because if you were uh, ostracized, if you were thrown out of that tribe, that means certain death fifty thousand right. years ago. Yeah. So the same innate, deeply, deeply entrenched thoughts of you have to conform are there. And they they are there for a reason. Once upon a time, they saved your life. Nowadays, not so much anymore. Especially since there are so many tribes out there to choose from. And some of these tribes, their rules, unfortunately more lethal than others when you look at conversion therapy, for example, and your tribe. Do you, having said that, go one step back. If we go back to our figures and actually say 
fair call. 5% is the absolute minimum of lesbian and gays. Well, only because you're belonging to the Mormon church doesn't mean to say that there is not uh, that, that, that feature of you, the trend to love someone of your own sex uh, is, is anyway different. So you might have stronger feelings of suppressing it, fair call, but still the feelings are there. So now you came out, now you were living a life that you were happy with and beginning to explore that freedom. And there would have been a lot of people behind their picket fence who sort of yeah. have a bit of a look and then maybe, maybe, baby, just quietly think, hmm, hmm, did you start a revolution? Did other people come out out of that group to actually quietly join you? I don't know that I've started a revolution. I have inspired people to ask themselves some questions. If Elena could live until she was 37 without recognizing that she was dealing with anxiety, depression, and homosexuality, then what am I hiding from myself that I'm not being aware of? And that was my very first message that I was putting out there was, if you're not self-aware, you will deal with it. It's just a matter of whether you're dealing with it consciously or not. Like, it'll smack you around. (laughs) If you're not aware of the secrets that are hiding in your head that are covered in a dusty blanket of shame. And that's why you're refusing to acknowledge them. I mean, and to put that into really concrete perspective, when I was living in that neighborhood, Oftentimes we'd have book club or girls night out or whatever, and women would start to talk, right? And one of the big topics of conversation was mental health and what prescriptions are you on and what has your doctor said and what's your dosage? Okay, you know where I'm going. And um, and I was the one that would stand in the corner and in my head be like, you first world women and your first world problems why do you think you're anxious and depressed? Like you live the most blessed lifestyle ever. What do you have to be depressed about, right? Like I was that person that was so judgmental. Why? Because I had so much shame about my own anxiety and depression, right? And I wasn't willing to look at them because they were just covered up with a blanket of shame. So not going to deal with it. Yeah, that'll that'll smack you in the face real soon. (laughs) So there's there's a book club waiting to happen in the Mormon church. <laughs> secret society of <laughs> No, that's uh, secret society automatically is negative. Let's don't use neg- let's well, let's not use let's be positive. So, uh how would you do that? Uh fi- <laughs> finding yourself in the Mormon church. Uh <laughs> version 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, actually, now drawing parallels to again the, the recovery system AA. AA can be extremely religious, and I'm so not. So mm-hmm. for me, I I just don't have that religious spark. I've never experienced that. So therefore, I'm quite a skeptic there, and I'm not alone. So there are my book. 12 steps to uh, my my steps to recovery um, is is explaining the 12 steps but as a as a uh, business uh, 
concept. You have got a failing business that you realize that you really need to do something about it and how you would go about helping a friend who is in the same same profession and he's failing and you're good and you would come on board and say, look, let's have a look what's going on. So that's that's how I look at the 12 steps, which mm-hmm. is a sacrilege for some people who believe yeah. that it's a very God-driven thing, etc. So, yeah. So as stupid as it sounds... Is there a secular version of the Mormon church? Is there a a less black and white version of the Mormon church? Or is is that is that an oxymoron? Is that completely exclusive? If you're a Mormon, you live that life, like right. it or not. Um, kind of. There is in the 1800s when um I mean, it's a big, long story. But in the 1800s, the original prophet died, was killed, and a new prophet was coming on board. And there was a big split in the church because some of the church felt like the prophet's son should be the next prophet, and other people felt like this new guy, Brigham Young, should be the next prophet. And so it kind of split, and a minority went the way with the Joseph Smith family, um, wanting the son to become prophet. And so they're called um, RLDS, Reformed Latter-day Saints, and they're small in number, but they are definitely more progressive. They believe women can have the priesthood, homosexuality is not a sin, they're just definitely not as conservative, and they still believe in the Book of Mormon. Um, yeah, they're, they're very different, but they have the same roots. Cool. So cool. there's that. And that already then shows if there are two versions of the same belief, that automatically would indicate that none of them can really be utterly wrong. Um, it is just a belief. It is a a belief system that you accept. And like with all belief systems, it, if that makes sense for you, and if it fosters your joy and and your your lovely side of you and and you're truly happy well i'm really happy for you but Mm -hmm. if the same belief system becomes a huge anchor around your neck and you get thrown into the ocean well that will kill you so i guess hmm. and that can really be the struggle like my kids still consider themselves mormon And they go to church with their dad. And part of me feels kind of like how my parents did, right? Like you can have whatever faith you want to have. And if you're choosing to be Mormon, I'm going to support you in that. And next week, if you choose to be Buddhist, I'm going to support you in that, right? Um, I try to stay in that mentality. Unfortunately, the Mormon church consistently teaches about my evilness to my children. Mm. And to me, that's not okay. And unfortunately, it's not just preaching that they can turn off. Let me give you an example. Um, So the temple is a really big building that is not for Sunday use. It is for like um, rituals like getting married. Okay. Mm. And you, you cannot return to heaven until you have been through the temple. 
So it's not just like by being Mormon, I'm going to heaven. There's like another step that you have to do and you have to qualify to go into the temple. And every year you have to have an interview with your bishop to make sure that you are, wait for it, worthy to <laughs> enter the building. And you literally get a little card. And, and when you go into the temple, you present your little card. Okay. So, and that was one of the first things that happened when I confessed to my bishop that I was in love with a woman. He immediately took my temple recommend away so that I could not access the temple anymore. Okay. Which of course sends the message that I am not worthy. That's the whole point is I am not worthy. Okay. So now I have these sons who want to go to the temple. And so they have to go to their yearly meeting with their bishop to prove their worthiness. I have an issue with that. <laughs> I no longer allow my children to sit in a room one-on-one -on -one with a random guy and confess any of their sexual sins, quote unquote. Mm. So now I sit in the room with them. Ooh. And Ooh. yeah. <laughs> and um, one of the questions in the Temple Recommend interview is, do you support anyone or any organization that goes against the teachings of the church? And my 16-year-old son had to turn to me and say, Mom, I love you, but I don't support you. So that he could get his temple recommend. So that he could be good with God and be worthy. Wow. So every time they go to church... Or every time, I mean, my high schoolers, they go to seminary, which is a class in the middle of the school day. It's a church class in the middle of the school day. So my teenagers are getting church lessons six days a week. It's hard for me to stay disengaged and say, yeah, you can be Mormon or you could be Buddhist or you could be whatever. Like, this is your choice. It's your path. It's your journey. I want to stay there in that headspace. But it's really hard. There is a saying, your rights stop at the end of my nose. Mm. And I think that is very, very true. You need to look yeah. after yourselves. And at the same token, I mean, are your boys clear in their head that that is something that they say in order to remain part of their tribe that they want to be? Or is that actually truly hand on heart what they believe? what they believe they have to they have to they have to believe that because they have to believe that god loves them and the only way god is going to love them is if they're worthy and the only way to be worthy in this situation is to not support your gay mom but then again first of all this is a new journey for you yeah they have seen many many years of the mom and alina and now there is this new Alina coming out. Yeah. Every day is a new day. And it is like, like for an alcoholic, the living amends. You have said so much in your life that then didn't turn out to be true. Yeah. We, as alcoholics or, or drug addicts, we lie uh, so often. So people are used to the fact, yeah, whatever you say, it will not come true or we can't believe you or we don't trust yeah. you. So by now you living a life where you show happiness in a, on a daily basis, where you 
find yourself laughing and joyful and literally love where there's this this energy bursting out of you where there's this this beauty comes out of you where the sparkle is in your eyes that can't be talked away with by beliefs your boys will see that your boys will see that you're happy they will just by seeing that example have to question themselves and be more open be less black and white less less you know indoctrinated indoctrinated is the word that i was looking for and but this is a slow journey this is this is little things without you actually saying a word it will be your actions that will alter their reality and it is it's not for nothing that we say that 95 percent of communication is non-verbal and uh, there you are so at least in your house they will see a very different mum they will see a different set of rules being applied that allows you the freedom to be happy mm-hmm. which you would have not been otherwise they will learn about conversion therapy they will learn about those kind of aspects they will learn about mental health because they are so much more uh, in tune with these things now they hear one side, they hear the brainwashing, but they're, they're intelligent young men for crying out loud. Let's not, let's not take that away from, from our sons and daughters out there. Yeah. They have got their own guts, their own intuitions, their own things. And they, they inevitably will form their own picture, will form their own reality. And you, by just living your life, will influence that so much more than you ever can 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 think mm-hmm. so this is beautiful you are you are you're not only shaping your own reshaping your own life shall i say you are also shaping theirs without without you actually doing much more than being happy it's true i mean by you saying that it makes me think the very best thing I can do for them is continue to not wear a mask, yeah. right? Is yeah. to continue to authentically connect with them and show them what that life is like to authentically connect without mm-hmm. a mask of shame and guilt and, mm-hmm. and all of the things. One of the things that I realized helped a lot, and so I, I put this out there because it might help other people, was that I needed to show my kids that our microcosm of a world is not how the world is at large. And so once I was able to find other families that had two same-sex parents and were happy and functional and the kids were normal, um, introducing my kids to them made a huge difference. They really started to feel like, all right, this isn't as weird as I thought it was. Brilliant. Brilliant. Which so is how, why we started, sorry, uh, it's why we started the Pride and Joy Foundation was to create that kind of community. So like you said, like there's these people everywhere and you want to just bring them all together so that they can realize they're not the only ones, right? Mm-hmm. Visibility is life. And so that's what the foundation tries to do is just put everyone in the same room so that mm-hmm. we all know we are not alone. So exactly. And, and what a beautiful keywords there. Tell us more about your foundation. Oh, yeah. I love it. (laughs) Please, please. We just got started. Uh, We launched during Pride Month this year. And it has been, it's grown into something absolutely incredible. Like not only do we have queer parents with presumably straight kids, 
we have straight parents of queer kids who are like, I want to respond the right way. I think he's going to come out to me this year, right? A lot of parents already know. And so they're like prepping and wanting to know how to respond the best because it's the thing about the LGBTQ population is we're one of the only marginalized populations who we aren't born into a family who's already experiencing it, right? Black kids are, are born into black families most of the time. And, but you don't have queer kids being born into with queer parents. And so you have these parents that are going, I don't know how to help you. And these kids are saying, but you're my parents and I don't know what to do either. And so luckily these straight parents are able to come and ask all the weird questions. Like what do all the letters mean? <laughs> like, right. They're able to ask all the weird questions and not feel like a jerk and then now we've gotten to the point where there's enough good friendships in that group that we have like a straight parent of a, of a gay boy saying to the queer parents, I, I need to have the sex talk with him. Like, what, what do I say and how do I present it? And, and what do I need to know? Is there stuff that I don't know about? And then the gay parents are able to say, yes, honey, I got you. <laughs> like, Beautiful. This Beautiful. is how you bring that up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, excellent. How big is your your group now? Oh, we have um, we what have part? lots of different layers to the group, right? right? So, so the largest group is a little over three hundred. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. And uh, that is still Mormon country. Mormon. Uh, you haven't mm. moved, no. I have not moved. No, because so my you boys are. were in high school, so uh, I wasn't going to move them. So here you are, people are coming out of the woodworks yeah. and uh, there are far many more out there that that want to come, no doubt about that. Yeah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, yeah. beautiful. And it's, so it's a non-profit organization. It's a non-profit. So yep. you guys yeah, are- our goal, we, we hope to do like a family conference where all these people who are in this online group together and have yeah. never met in real life that we'll be able to come together for a weekend. Wow. And then our big dream is that in the summertime, we could do a, like a summer camp hmm. where all the families get to go and do all the fun hokey camp stuff, right? <laughs> and it'll be queer kids and queer parents and straight kids and allies, you know, because that's that's the third part of our community is we have these parents that are straight who want to be strong allies and they want to raise their kids to be strong allies. And they don't really have the verbiage to do that because we were never raised to be strong allies, right? Like we weren't told how to stand up for the gay kid in the corner, you know? And so that's been an awesome part of it as well is that they're in the group as well, asking questions, learning, introducing their kids. Because especially when you live like I do in kind of a microcosm, you have to seek out people that you want to be an ally to. You have to seek out, like I had to find gay people because I had none of them in my life. (laughs) (laughs) and it is what it is it is what it is it is i mean our life is a journey uh like it or lump it and and you found yourself on a few crossroads Mm. and now you are on a path that is new to you so you had to make it up as you went and that's i guess what life is all about but at the same token there are now people like you out there who become beacons for others, who become the the torch holders in the darkness, who say, come on, guys, 
let's do something. Let's be positive here. And let's, let's just shine some light on what actually is normal, what actually is, is just a version of normality. And I, I love to see that. It is, let's, let's drop the masks. Let's be honest. And once we can do that, then you can actually deal with the problems. When mm-hmm. the problems are hidden, you That's can't right. do much about it. But the moment you shine light on it and say, okay, okay, we've got this, we've got that. How do we deal with that? Suddenly, it is no longer the deadly sin. Mm-hmm. It is actually just a new version of reality, a new version of normality. Mm-hmm. It's a new challenge for for those parents out there who face suddenly uh, a teenager coming out to them. Mm-hmm. It is just as much a challenge as as, as any any other day. Just take it as that and 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 try to to refocus on the sheer fact that you love that person. Yeah. And that person just has uh, suddenly a set of values that may very well be very foreign to you. Such is life. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, exactly. Start learning. <laughs> start <laughs> learning. Start, start asking the hard questions. Because yeah. then that is a way how to grow together with that person instead of you sticking to your own values, which might have suited you very, very well. Mm-hmm. And which might you, which you still might actually believe in, deep mm-hmm. down to the core of your heart, but it, maybe it is time for that that acceptance that your values might not necessarily be their values, and how do you live with that? Mm-hmm. Mm. Hard, Alina. If uh, people want to sort of get hold of you and your group, how can they do that? Yeah. So prideandjoy.com www.prideandjoyfoundation, sorry, prideandjoyfoundation.com. And you'll be able to see a link right there up at the top. Um, We invite everyone to try out our group for a month for free to see if it holds value for them and if they can find some good connections in there. So I always suggest that. We also have a lot of other resources that are around self-awareness, core values, limiting beliefs. Mm. Um, The foundation's goal is to truly increase safety in LGBTQ families. And the suicide rate is too high. And the homeless rate among youth, 40% of them are LGBT, when only 5% of youth are LGBT. So there's a big problem there. And we really feel like the best way to address the problems of suicide and homelessness is with self-awareness, that the more parents can become self-aware and the more these kids can become self-aware, they're going to change the cycle. They're going to become functional, healthy adults for the next generation of queer kids. Wow. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Elena, you are a very humbling woman uh, to to see the joy in your face, to, to see the sparkle in your eyes now. Uh, I'm, I'm privileged to see that now. And I have not, I, I don't know you. I didn't know you when you were the other Alina. But it is, I doubt very much that there would have been as much joy, true joy in your eyes. I think 
that's probably a given. So now it's yeah. great. It's great to, to meet the new you version 2.0. Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much for coming onto my show. You uh, really, really made my day. I enjoyed this interview tremendously. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for providing this. I really appreciate it. No trouble. And you guys out there, live your life to the fullest. Okay. Uh, have a do a, a thorough in, inventory of what's going on in your life. Don't don't hide behind the mask. Just take the mask off and accept what is happening in your life and then try to figure out how can you get yourself better and look after yourself. And do exactly that out there. Take care of yourself, guys. Bye. Bye.